Listener Production. Kath Kachel has lived the highest of highs and the lowest of lows to a degree you would never expect of someone who hasn't yet reached her 40s. On track for a sensational cricketing career, debuting for New South Wales in 2011 at Adelaide Oval, Kath's dream was abruptly cut short. In the space of five years, she would break her back twice and face two physically and mentally gruelling recoveries. In that same period of time, Kath also would lose the love of her life to suicide, plunging her into a period of new lows and a personal darkness. Remarkably, though, Kath has not only survived tragedy but thrived in its wake. Her new book explores what she's learned about perspective, connection and happiness and how the kindness of strangers helped her through life's cruelest moments. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with Kath Kachel. And just a content warning that this episode includes mention of suicide and so to proceed with caution and self-compassion. Hey, Kath, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thanks so much for having me. Big fan. Oh, we so appreciate hearing that. I have been looking forward to chatting with you for a while. Let's start at the beginning because I think a lot of people who are listening right now are going to know you for your cricket skills. Tell me about you as a kid. Were you always the sporty kid? Um, yeah, I was. So I'm, I'm the youngest of four um, and also the only girl. So I've got three older brothers so by the time I come around, I think mum was sort of always wanting a girl. My mum and I are very different in character, very much loved, still there and all that kind of stuff. We're very close. But I think she wanted the, you know, the the ballet dancer, the one that loved pink, the princess and all that kind of stuff. But with three older brothers, such as the ones that I have, they're, you know, they're quite rough and all that kind of stuff. It was very easy for me to follow their path. And yeah, you know, I just I always wanted to hang out with those guys. I loved, um, I love my brothers. Um, I still do, um, and I never wanted to miss out on the fun they were having. So, um, sport became a very obvious way for me to be able to connect with them. Um, and yeah, I, I was, uh, yeah, I was. I mean, I've as an adult, um, actually through the writing process of my book, I was struggling a lot. Um, I, I just couldn't get my focus for whatever reason. I've never written a book, of course, and. Um, I actually was diagnosed with with ADHD halfway through the writing process and that makes a lot of sense to me when it's now spelt out and all that kind of stuff and I know there's heaps of people being diagnosed later in life Um, and for me I've heard a lot of women of sort of similar age and above feel the need to grieve a lot of their life because they felt like they never fit in or you know they were misdiagnosed and that meant that their life followed a path that then you know they weren't too happy with and all that but for me it's probably actually the opposite I'm very fortunate that because I had this brain that worked a little bit differently um, I had sport that captured all of that I guess so I was able to have an energy outlet where I was running around a field or chasing a ball or doing whatever I was I was doing and and thankfully for me um, that diagnosis actually makes a whole lot more sense but it actually probably helped me in my sporting pursuits and things like that as well so for me I don't know what it was about cricket that I love so much um I, I think it was something about you know it's such an individual sport within a team sport that 
you know, you've got 11 of your best mates around you just to celebrate your success and commiserate when you lose and all that kind of stuff. But then it can also, you know, to take the winning catch, it comes down to one person or to hit the winning runs, it comes down to one person. And I don't know why it's just such a unique sport. And I always felt like when I crossed, you know, the field side of the boundary that my mind was always the quietest and I was always able to be myself and express myself in ways that I hadn't been able to in other parts of my life. It sounds to me like you had a really quintessential Australian childhood and and a very happy childhood. Yeah, I was the sporty kid. Um, you know, I had I had the most wonderful childhood. Hey, I can't can't fault my childhood. It was so beautiful. Um, I come from a very privileged background in that, you know, we're white Caucasian, very typical Australian, uh, middle-class sort of kind of family. So we didn't have heaps of money. Like we were four kids, policeman's wage at one point. So, you know, not swimming in cash, but I think what we lacked in cash, mum and dad made up for with love and they never made us feel like we missed out on anything. And uh, I love being part of a big family and all that kind of stuff, just because it was just always so much fun. Um, to have three brothers to, to muck around with and to spend time with and stuff like that. So very working class kind of family, um, hard workers, but, uh, yeah, I love my family. Had, had just the most wonderful childhood because of that as well. There have been some really significant numbers of uh, adult women being diagnosed with ADHD in particular over the last couple of years and it sounds like the pandemic has had a little bit to do with that, though I've also um, had a lot of mates as well as been reading in the media who have ended up being diagnosed while going through the process of getting their kids diagnosed and kind of been sitting in in doctor's offices and going, well, what are you talking about? Like I do that sounds like me, uh, and then putting some things together. And um, one of the things I've sort of heard uh, reflected back from from people who've gone through that process is that grief that you talked about, but also a sense of clarity and a real sense of uh, understanding yourself better. Has that happened for you uh, both through a diagnosis and also through the process of writing a book, which requires quite an extraordinary amount of self-reflection. <laughs> yeah, it was so interesting because of, I guess, my career path, like, you know, one, first being an athlete, then I worked in sport um, and then I sort of now travel the world as a motivational speaker. I guess they're pretty good career paths for someone with with an ADHD diagnosis. Um, and so in that sense, uh, it, for me, the first true uncovering of that was through the writing process where you've got to put yourself in front of a screen and, and be structured and, and all those sorts of things. My editor deserves a bloody medal. She really does. Um, she was so patient with me and uh, I, I my favourite part about the book was actually getting to spend as much time with her as I did. So she's got a beautiful mind and, um, you know, sat with my experiences and the things that I was writing about and all that kind of stuff with such poise and, and grace that not many people do. And, and in that sense, you get a bit of a turbo charge view of it but yeah for me it was actually more of a as I said I've never felt the need to grieve in the sort of 18 months since I've got been diagnosed it's just made my my life started to make sense to me and then through working with like professionals like a psych and things like that I I don't see it as a disability or anything like that I just see it as a how do I harness this so that the things that I struggle with become a little bit easier Um, and the things that have that is so wonderful about having a diagnosis like this. Like, so for me, I'm very impulsive. So I'll get an idea in my head and I have to execute straight away. And for me, my life has been so beneficial as a result of that in that I wouldn't have gone on the journey that I've now written a book about um, and that I speak about all around the world. And there's half the things that have been so amazing about my life in a very extraordinary, wonderful way that wouldn't have happened without 
I guess that part of my brain doing what it does. And so for me, I've probably wanted to find a way to celebrate it in the best way possible and to harness the power, the superpower that I believe it is. But then I frustrate the hell out of myself. I can't sit down. I can't sit still. Um, so <laughs> writing a book was, was, was difficult. Yeah. So I had to get tools and it was like, okay, get what you can do. I used to have this rule where I'd go, I'd, I'd, I'd be dreading it. I'd be like, not because I didn't love what I was writing about, but the structure of it. So I'd be like, right, at one o'clock you're starting and that's like, so you've got 20 minutes to muck around, do whatever you've got to do, get it out of your system and then you get to like 1.02 and I'd miss the, the cutoff and i go, oh, shit, I better start at 1.30. I'd be like, no, no, no. So my psych, for example, said, why don't you just, um, you know, if there's, if it's 12.47, tell yourself you've got 13 minutes to get started and then at the one o'clock mark, if you're sort of, in a flow, keep going. Amazing. It's done its job. Um, if you look at the clock and it's one o'clock and you're still struggling, then just go for a run, go for a ride, do yeah. whatever it is you need to. Your brain obviously doesn't want to co- cooperate. And so it was probably that skill that helped me, but then also understanding that I didn't have to be so hard on myself. So rather than getting frustrating, going, why can't I write today? Or why can't I do this today? It was more, um, just give yourself a bit of grace and compassion to be able to understand that your brain's a bit different. It'll get done. I work really well to a deadline. So I could get, you know, a week's worth of work done in four hours if I had to and all that kind of stuff. So there's so many pros and cons of everything for sure. Let's go back to your sporting career because we started with you as a kid mucking around with your brothers. Tell me about when you first realised that this thing you love doing, playing cricket, was something that could be a career. I wasn't a gifted sort of player by any stretch. I was there or thereabouts. You can't, you know, to play at the level that I did, you don't get away with being scrappy. But, you know, I wasn't one of those naturally freakily gifted players. I had to work hard for everything that I achieved and and, and the level that I got to for sure. Um, and it probably wasn't till sort of late teens, early adulthood that um, I just wouldn't take no for an answer. I got handed my first professional contract in Middlesex in the UK actually spent two years over there and I just had a really good coach that I connected with and he was he was quite wonderful in bringing out my strengths and things like that as a player um, to the point where, yeah, the phone come calling and New South Wales selectors said, look, we've, we've been keeping an eye on your progress. We're, you know, we're very surprised in a really good way. We're ready to pick you. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was amazing. But I wasn't, yeah, naturally yeah. gifted player by any show. I just had to, I, I love cricket so much. I just had to work so hard for it. Um, but it paid off in, in the way uh, that I, I wanted it to and, and that was fantastic as well. So you do come back to Australia. You debut for New South Wales in, in 2011, I think it was. Tell me about the back injury that you sustained quite soon after that career in playing for New South Wales began. Yeah, I was I was in the form of my life. Like I was hitting the ball better than pretty much anyone at that point in time in our squad and things like that. And so I knew selection was, was looming. Um, and we went on a bit of a carnival um, prior to the, the first 11 being selected, which I played in and, and you know, I played the tournament, things like that. Um, but I had started to notice some symptoms. So I was having a lot of sciatic pain, so through my left sort of bum cheek, and um, that was quite sharp. But because I wasn't, I don't have the background in physio and medical and things like that, I hadn't really connected the dots that that symptom aligned with, you know, I couldn't really feel my left big toe um, were one and one the same so it was sort of connected and all that kind of stuff and I wasn't a big person to sort of have um regular physio so I booked in to see the physio and she was quite shocked and you know you got an appointment you got a slot what's going on and I said um 
look, I can't really feel my big toe. Um, so that's probably the first thing. And I'm, I've got a bit of pain going through sort of my sciatic area. So she got me on the bed and, you know, we did a bit of testing and things like that. And she said, look, lay off training tonight. Just sit on the bike for a bit and I'll, I'll update you in, in a couple of hours. And I saw her coming down into the gym and she said, look, uh, I spoke to the doctor. We're going to scan you up first thing in the morning. So I said, okay. And I hadn't really thought much of it. I didn't even know it was back related at this point. And yeah. um, I knew the, the the radiographer, his name was Trader, um, and through work and things like that, we we were known to each other and said, oh, who, like, what's going on? I said, I need a scan. Here's what it is. And so he did it. And I could see the alarm on his face just because I knew him quite yeah. well. And I said, oh, what is it, you know, how's it looking? And he said, oh, mate, I, I'm not allowed to say. And I think that's when I knew I was like, oh, it's, I reckon it's pretty bad. And I uh, took the scan straight to Doc and he said, look, mate, it's it's pretty bad. You've got a prolapsed disc in your spine. Um, what do you want to do? Because you're up for selection. Um, it's your call. Like I can't rule you out. It's not bad enough to rule you out, but it's pretty dangerous. You don't really want to be putting your back through this. You only get one of them or that kind of stuff. And I was just, a, I'm still a cricket tragic, loved it. Um, and so for me, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm playing because I might not get this opportunity yeah. to show myself and do all that. So played, um, no regrets, but yeah, four games into that career, um, that injury sort of worsened in, in the worst possible way. Like no one anticipated that I'd go from, you know, a scan showing what it showed to breaking my back within sort of four games. So um yeah, the disc essentially ended up coming out so quick that the two vertebrae had nowhere to go and um, they they cracked onto each other. Part of the bottom vertebrae cracked off, sorry, and went straight into my spinal cord. So completely paralysed, couldn't feel anything below my waist for a fair bit there. The contrast between the feelings that you were describing in quick succession is so clear to me. You're going from this joyful, unimaginable high of reaching the sporting level that you had worked towards for so long and then having the the unthinkable happen because because when you're young the idea of physical impairment of injuring yourself of hurting yourself of getting sick is it's just usually not even in your in your thinking it's not in your world and not only this this you know this dream had just begun where I was on cloud nine it honestly felt euphoric right to debut for New South Wales when everyone told me it probably wasn't going to be happening at a young age and all that kind of stuff and to prove everyone wrong was fantastic but to actually get there was was really nice and then to go from that euphoria feeling to not only is this dream just vanished in front of my eyes but I actually can't feel anything below my waist and I'm you know taken to the nearest hospital five unsuccessful surgeries and and then had one that we thought had changed the game for us that sort of gave me, started to give me some feeling back into my limbs and I was starting to walk again independently. And unfortunately, a you know, post-surgical complication happened and that led to me coming very close to having my leg amputated actually. So that was another full-on experience on on top of, I guess, you know, you go through the euphoria of debuting, you break your back, you come back up and they tell you it's sort of somewhat of a success and then you go back down in this news of a post-surgical complication nearly, you know, costing you your leg. Um, so, yeah, it was just like I guess my whole life after that first broken back was just this one big roller coaster ride where it was just yeah. riding this wave of ups and extreme ups, like of amazing feelings, but extreme lows of life just knocking you down. So, um, yeah, it's, it's it's been rough going for sure. What an incredible physical ordeal. I I wonder though, Kath, 
how it impacted you mentally, particularly given that, you know, we're all very attached to our bodies and what our bodies can do. But for you, that was fundamental, not just to moving you around, but to earning a living, doing what you loved most. And when your physicality is at risk like that, not being able to, to feel your legs, I imagine that that for you, that the mental shock of that would have been even bigger. As an athlete, and certainly back then, there wasn't as much education as there is now about mental health, well-being, mm. etc. You know, we offer. You said what we like as a kid. Um, you know, were you seen as the sporty girl and all that kind of stuff? I, I was definitely. So when I'm 15, 16, I start exploring the world and social connections and stuff. And you go to a party, for example, and everyone goes, "Oh, there's Kath. She's the, the sporty one, the cricket player, all that kind it's of." It's who stuff. you are. Yeah, and so suddenly I learned that really the only thing that people find interesting about me is that I'm good at sport or I can play cricket and all those sorts of things. And so your identity starts to form through other concepts but also your own concept of of what makes you unique and special and all those sorts of things so to have it ripped away from you in as quick of a fashion as I did you're sort of there going well what am I good at what, what do I do now like I, I put all of my eggs in this one basket chasing a dream and it's just vanished in front of me basically I, I can't even use my legs now I can't walk so um, I think what protected me though um, is that I've always been quite in, in like a mature way, I've been quite naive in that I've never really let a struggle knock me for six. And it's not saying I'm better than anyone or anything like that. But for me, when I, even when I was sort of facing amputation and stuff, I, I genuinely believe that one, everything would be okay. And that, I think there's a naivety about that for sure, like a positivity about that. But also I was convinced that not only I'd walk again, that I'd, I'd get back on a cricket field. And I think that actually protected me in the first instance um, from a, a pretty severe decline in my mental health. So I spent sort of 12 months in rehab learning how to walk. And one thing that I used to notice with all the patients who had probably a better prognosis than I did, they'd often say to me, geez, you're so lucky. Like, and I go, oh, what do you mean? And they're like, because you're sort of on your way to walking again. And, um, you know, you had a pretty poor diagnosis and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the difference there was that I'd get up every day and and, and do the work essentially with that, that they were prescribing to me. And it's not to discredit anyone who's going through a rehab challenge, but with rehab, you're not in rehab if you're thriving, right? So with rehab comes mental health issues. So you, your life was what you wanted it to be and then it just suddenly isn't. And so your mental health starts to decline, depression sets in, et cetera. Um, and I don't think I fell into that category initially until life, more life adversity sort of struck not too long after that. And then I had a pretty severe decline in my mental health as well. You met someone when you were in rehab and you fell in love. Can you tell us about Jim? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, first of all, it's so funny. Like, who finds love in a rehab centre? Um, so, oh, I reckon like half the characters on Grey's Anatomy. Can't be that unusual. <laughs> I haven't watched too much of that, but I should get into it. Maybe my life will make sense then as well. But um, yeah, I'll never forget meeting him for the first time. It was, I'd been there like a month, four weeks, and. Um, God, it was the furthest thing from graceful you could ever imagine. I was trying to get out of the pool. I was in a hydro session and even when you're, you're not disabled trying to get out of a pool, you cock your leg up. No, no one does that well. No one does that well, exactly. <laughs> so I'm trying to do that. I look up and he's there sort of getting an induction tour. And I was looking at the orderly and I saw him and he just caught my eye and I was like, oh, wow. And 
you know, I was attracted to him, all those sorts of things. But for me, I think my first couple of weeks I'd actually spent in the geriatric ward. They didn't have beds in my ward. And so it was such an overwhelming experience for me being there on day one. And I kept thinking to myself, well, he's of similar age and, for whatever reason, I just felt like we'd have a lot in common. He looked quite sporty, all that kind of stuff. And um, I remember thinking to myself, I'll just befriend him. And, you know, I could see the overwhelm on his face, what it must have felt like to be on day one. And that was only me four weeks prior. I kept thinking, so, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll show him a few things about rehab, like which doctors aren't grumpy, um, you know, where to get the good <laughs> yogurt from, like all that kind of stuff. Um, and very quickly, it just sort of happened like very organically. And, and naturally, we, we we fell in love. And it was really interesting because when you're in rehab, like, you know, I'm 24 at this point um, and you think you're so grown up at 24, but you're not, you sort of got a lot to learn about life and having spent most of my adult life already just, you know, being an athlete and that you sort of lose perspective and then you're in rehab and you learn so much about the world around you and people and struggle and adversity and all that. And, you know, I remember three months into our kind of relationship you kind of turbocharge your relationship because when you first start dating someone on the outside world you know you might go on a date you might go on a second date and then you might see each other once a week and then you might progress into a relationship and you know within six months you might live with each other or whatever that looks like but in rehab you're with each other or you have the capacity to be with each other you know six to twelve sorry 24 7 so yeah you kind of turbocharge this relationship and so it happened very quickly and um, I remember like three months into our relationship thinking to myself, wow, I'm actually pretty stoked I broke my back. Like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty stoked that that happened because if yeah. I, I didn't, I wouldn't have found this. And it was just, um, I mean, yeah, as I said, who finds love in a rehab centre? Like we're just like normal young kids in love instead of long walks on the beach. We did wheelchair races in the corridor and and really made the the time and the environment our own and um he was just, he was such a wonderful person. Like a, we, we sort of had to, you had these sort of two parallels going on in, in your life. You had this amazing, magical, warm feeling of growing and uh, in love with someone, which is, which is quite amazing. And then you've got this other side to your life mm. where you're literally trying to learn how to walk again. So you got this amazing feeling on one side and you got this like, fuck, I'm so tired and I'm so over this rehab experience. And and that was the same for both of us. And so we're like, well, how do we how do we propel our and inspire our recovery so that we're out of here quicker and we can build the life that we want to build? And and that's what we did essentially. We just we, we dared to dream um, in the most of unlikely environments in rehab. And and for us those dreams were you know, they were special to us, but no more special like than anyone else's. So, you know, for us, we wanted four kids. It'd be three boys and a girl, just like my family. Um, house in Broadwater on the Gold Coast, pet turtles, dogs. Um, <laughs> and really it was like, what life can we design or aspire towards so that when we're going through the grind of rehab, we, we know we've got a reward at the end of this. So let's get better. Let's get ourselves on the outside world so that we can just look back at this time when we've got grandkids and all that kind of stuff and go, well, we met in rehab and it's because we we're doing this, but now we're fine and, and all those sorts of things. And, and those were the little moments that made rehab a bit more bearable for us, um, which, which was honestly, I don't think, one, I don't think I'd be walking without his influence in my life, like the way that we spurred each other on and all those sorts of things. But mentally rehab's a really tough place to be. It's just, um, it's, it almost feels like a downgrade from rehab. You're not sick enough to be in hospital anymore, but you're not well mm. enough to be at home. And 
um, you know, heaps of people are depressed and struggling and all those sorts of things. And it's, it's quite easy to become your environment. Um, so Jim yeah. was just a breath of fresh air for me to get out of that headspace and to really propel myself forward into my recovery. And, and for both of us as well, I, I like to think that I was able to do that for him too. It is, it is, uh, so lovely hearing you talk about, uh, the joy that you clearly brought each other during that period and the incredible plans that you had for your future. I don't know about the turtles, but all the otherwise incredible <laughs> plans that you clearly had for your future. Um, everyone listening will have noticed that you are talking in the past tense and that um, Jim's has since passed away. I, I almost don't want to ask about that, the blow of, of that kind of loss, but particularly when you had just been through the physical ordeal and the recovery that you had. Yeah, um, it was honestly the toughest thing I've ever been through and I genuinely believe the toughest thing that I'll ever go through. So... 12 months into our relationship, um, I was considered an outpatient, which just meant I visited rehab three mornings a week and then I went home or to, to work and, and, and essentially it's a transition back into normal kind of life. Um, Jim had a day to go before he was to be considered an outpatient and, and, you know, we just put the lease on the house and all of the dreams that we were dreaming were, were going to come true the next day when uh, the night before his full-time release, he yet very tragically and suddenly passed away via um, suicide, which oh, it, it gets easier, but it doesn't get easier, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it just bloody, yeah. um, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It really did. And, you know, you get the lump in your throat and all that kind of stuff, just talking about it in that way, in the, I remember thinking to myself, I'm never going to be happy again, like in the aftermath of his passing. And there's so many complexities that come with his loss for me in that one there's the grief and the loss and the yearning for him, but also the life that you were creating and, and all those sorts of things. But then there's the added layer and complexity of, of suicide and, um, God, that like it rocked. Like, I don't want anyone to think that um, I'm extra special or amazing because of the things that I've endured and overcome. Because I'm, I'm not. And I want everyone to know that there's been a huge struggle there. Like, I haven't gotten to the position that I have without going through absolutely rock bottom. I remember, ten months after his passing, so he passes away, and and it's just shock and grief, and you're just overwhelmed, and all these questions flood into your mind, and. And you, I got to 10 months and then I just hit rock bottom. I had a complete emotional breakdown. I was like, how do I, you know, first I lose this dream of, of playing cricket, the thing that I only ever wanted to do. And then I lost the person that taught me that there was so much more to life than hitting a ball around a park. And it just crushed me. And I, I had to learn the hard way um, that life is hard. Like it, it genuinely is. I was just yeah. literally just talking to a friend on the phone who's just going through a bit of a, a thing at the moment and, she sort of said to me, well, this is nothing in comparison to what you've been through. I'm like, we don't need to compare. Like life is bloody hard at the best of times. And I, I think this is what inspired a movement of kindness is that life's never going to be easy. Like stuff happens to every single one of us nearly every single day that can rock us to the core. Um, but so why do we make life harder for each other and put each other through great like other stuff and unnecessary suffering and all that kind of stuff? And it was through a few things that I started to – to rebuild my life at that rock bottom moment. Um, the first, honestly, was the understanding that when you're at rock bottom, there's only one way to go. You can't get any lower. And yeah. I remember thinking to myself, this is the worst it's ever going to be. 
Um, like it, you can't get any lower than this. I genuinely believe that my life will never be as difficult as that. And in that sense, you sort of got to go, okay, if I'm enduring this right now and I'm still breathing, then I've got to take a step forward. But what are, what are the steps? Like I, someone give me the the manual to this because I don't understand it and I, I don't want to feel this way. And um, I, I just want him back and I, I yearned and I asked myself so many questions about his loss. You know, um, he meant so much to me and he helped me so much in my recovery was I not that for him? And was I not enough? And, you know, when he's smiling in the photos that I look back on, did he mean that smile? Because I was so happy in that moment. And he maybe wasn't if he's led to have this decision and all that kind of stuff. But I guess at the end of the day, I had to realise that our love was enough and um, and that it, his decision ultimately had nothing to do with me. It was none of my business. I think for Jim, the pain of losing his mobility and, and everything that he was enduring and going through was was too great. And I had to accept that, but it took a long while for me to be able to do it. A lot of people, they would reach out if they heard my story um, and they'd lost someone close to them by suicide and they'd go, but how do you deal with the anger? Mm. And I remember being confused. And I was like, what anger? What, what, what are you talking about? And they go, aren't you angry at him? And, and I, I remember the first time I heard it, it almost took my breath away in shock. I, I said, no, like there's not one part of me that's angry at him. I just love him and I feel so much empathy for him still that he must have just been struggling and hurting so deeply and, and couldn't let anyone in. And I remember feeling a little bit of anger. It was probably more towards myself. Um, you know, why did I not see it coming? Um, you obviously didn't make him feel comfortable enough to share his emotions and feelings. And what did I do to contribute to this? Because we were so close and we, I spent the most time with him and all those sorts of things. And I had to learn to let that go through a, a pretty significant therapeutic journey with a you know professional psychologist to really turn my life around. Um, but it was never easy. It was, you know, you have to do the work and you have to explore the part of yourself that you never thought you would have to. And in that sense, you know, I think we can sometimes see adversity as just hardship, but sometimes it can actually offer us uh, a level of self-awareness that we we never knew that we could have about ourselves, like what makes us tick and why do we think certain ways and all those sorts of things. And I just had to do the work and explore parts of myself to really unpack who I was and why I was feeling the way that I was and all those sorts of things. But the, the two key ingredients that really turned my life around was gratitude and kindness. So I remember I have this mental breakdown. I land myself in the Gold Coast where we're due to start our life together. And I'm sat down at this coffee table at this, uh, it was Jim's mum's house. And I was just still feeling quite lost and taking it slow and doing all that kind of stuff. And I remember on the coffee table was a piece of paper and a pen. It must have been there for a shopping list or a to-do list or something and just a blank sheet of paper, nothing fancy. And I remember thinking to myself, I just started writing down these names on the piece of paper. And there were names of people in my life who had shown up for me, like mum and dad, my brothers, uh, my family, um, my friends, uh, you know, doctors, physios, and I just kept writing, they just kept popping into my head. And um, I remember holding the sheet of paper in front of my face going, this is 30 reasons to keep going. Like if for nothing else, these people have always believed in me, they've always shown up. And the other thing I want people to know is I've never done any of this alone. I am so privileged in that I my support networks have been incredible. I'm not here today without those support networks, genuinely believe that. I'm not walking without them, all those sorts of things. But something that I've always struggled with is like I've, I'm so stubborn, like it's not a good trait. I am so stubborn. I'm so sometimes fiercely independent. I think as having the older brothers and 
and I always struggled to accept help. And so this was a huge thing for me. I remember holding that sheet of paper going, this is 30 reasons to keep going. But then the most important step was I picked up my phone for the first time since going through all this stuff. And, and I just called every single person at least just to say thanks. And the first was my doctor and he must have seen my name flash up on the screen. He picked up and he goes, oh, my God, what have you done? What have you broken? How do I help? <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, doc, that's, I'm, I'm just calling to say thanks. I'm, I'm okay. I'm in the Gold Coast. I'm, this is where I am. I'm, I'm doing okay. I, ju- I just needed to say thanks for being in my life. And he broke down in tears and he said, oh, my God, Kath, this is like it's an absolute privilege to be a part of your life. Um, and before you go, let me tell you, you know, I'm so proud of you and, and thanks so much for, for calling and letting me know that you're okay. And I just called every single person on that list and they all had a very similar response. Um, and I think for, for most of the people in a country like Australia, we have people in our life like that. It might not be 30, it could be three, it could be one person, but I now travel the world as a motivational speaker and, and the question or the the challenge I put to literally anyone who listens to me is this. You know, let, think of your favourite person, someone who's always shown up for you in their life. Um, it's their birthday coming up, right? So you like it could be your bestie, it could be a spouse, it could be whoever it is that's most important to you. It's a birthday coming up, you go to the shop, you're like, I'm going to get them the gift they've always wanted for their birthday this year. I just really want to do that. Pay for the gift, you wrap it up, put a bow on it, and then it comes time to give it to them for their birthday and you go, I'll bugger it, and you throw it in the cupboard and you never give it to them. That would be a complete waste, yeah? I think the same goes for feeling gratitude and not expressing it, right? Yeah. So this is a two-minute conversation that we can have with whoever that person is. And the best part about, I guess, learning all this is you, you don't have to wait for adversity to strike before you do it because I guarantee you that the next time you do that, and please don't wait a moment longer, do it whenever you can next. Pick up the phone, go have a coffee with them, whatever. Hey, it's me, Kath. I just wanted to let you know I'm, I'm, I'm stoked that you're in my life. Here's why like, I appreciate you because of that time that we belly laughed until we couldn't stop or that time that we had dinner together and we had this kind of conversation, that time you helped me with this, whatever. Um, not only will it strengthen the relationship that you already have with that person, so the next time you're in adversity it's easy to pick up the phone or whatever, but I, I, I genuinely guarantee you it'll be the greatest gift that you give yourself and them in the process. And the best part about it is we don't have to wait. It's completely free. Um, and I think as human beings, certainly in a country like this, we we often forget to have those moments with people because we don't love being vulnerable and, and opening ourselves up and all that kind of stuff. But they are so important, those conversations. And for me, it was truly transforma- like it was transformational in that moment. And as I said, it wasn't like I swallowed a magical pill where my life was amazing, but it certainly started to turn my life around where I was like, if nothing else, I've got all these people in my life that love me. Um, and that's enough for me in this moment for sure. Kath, you are absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for being part of this conversation and being my guest today. You're welcome. That's it for my conversation with Kath Cachell. Her life is so incredibly action-packed, my gosh. There is so much that has happened to this young woman. What we didn't even get to is the fact that she then went on to compete in an Ironman triathlon with only feeling in one of her legs. She was one of the first people ever to do so with prosthetic discs in her back. And she found this new passion for a competitive endurance sport and continued to sign up for triathlons. And then when she was training for a bike event, uh, a couple of years later, she was she was hit from behind by a truck and broke her back again. 
and uh, sustained more life-threatening and life-altering injuries as a result. And and what Kath's story really says to me is that it's a real story. It's it's not a movie. If if this was a movie, if we were making this up, her story would end at a point where we had reached the conclusion of her challenges and we tied it up neatly in a little bow and everyone would live happily ever after. But that is not how real life happens. Real life keeps happening and having experienced one tragedy does not insulate you from more. I hope that I have already thoroughly convinced you to pick up a copy of Kat's new book, Kindness, What Surviving on the Kindness of Strangers Taught Me About Perspective, Connection and Happiness. It's available from all good bookstores or you can grab a digital copy online. And of course, if Kath and my conversation was difficult for you in any way, or if you need someone to talk to, you can call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 Don't go away. The Weekend List is coming up next. It is the Weekend List time, folks, and Helen Smith is back. She is here with me. Prepare for some brilliant recommendations. Helen usually sends you away with a bargain recommendation as well, but I know she brings the goods every weekend. Helen, kick us off. What have you got? I believe there's a podcast. Yes. So this week, my first recommendation is a podcast by the BBC. It's called 28-ish Days Later, and it's hosted by India Raxon, and it's all about our menstrual cycle. It's Amazing, because I realised while I'm listening to it, I'm about halfway through, I think there's 28 episodes in the in the series, which is very great, the 28-ish days title, which I love, I love that, um, but it's just making me realise I know nothing, like I absolutely know yeah. nothing. Yeah, um, and it just walks you through the menstrual cycle, everything and anything about periods and everything that affects that from contraception, hormonal contraception, like the pill and fertility And it's really just talking about, hey, like this podcast is for everyone. If you have a period, if you don't, if you know someone who does, it's just really, really well done. And the BBC, the beautiful music, the classical music they have in the background, it just makes me feel very smart while I'm listening to it. So that's a plus. (laughs) I love that. But I also think that is such a great concept because so many of us, when we're kids, you know, you do a little bit of sex ed at primary school and, and high school and then a lot of us don't learn much again, we just kind of muddle through, right? So I love the idea that podcasts are are coming to the fore to help uh, people who menstruate learn about their own bodies. And also, I hope, help other people to learn more so that they can be more supportive than they would be otherwise. I am going to recommend a profile piece that ran in the Australian newspaper uh, over the weekend. It's all about Kate Jenkins, who is the outgoing sex discrimination commissioner. And spoiler alert, we actually have an interview with Kate Jenkins coming up, reflecting on her term as sex discrimination commissioner on the weekend briefing in a few weeks. This profile is a great way for you to prep for the podcast episode. Uh, But quite genuinely, Kate uh, Jenkins has been, I think, the most impactful and influential sex discrimination commissioner that the country has ever had. She's just finished her seven years in the job. She delivered a whole bunch of reforms, but most critically, the landmark report uh, that is already changing workplace culture across this country. And 
also in Australia's parliament. She's led a whole bunch of enormously impactful reforms and I think most critically has encouraged the country to start seeing sexual harassment at work as a workplace health and safety issue, not an HR issue. Uh, and I think that is a, just a, such a fundamental shift and I think she's quite a remarkable person and this profile is really good. So it's in The Australian, really encourage you to have a read and to uh, keep an ear out because we'll be chatting with Kate Jenkins soon as well. What else do you have for us, Helen? Alrighty. So my second recommendation is a bit rogue, but I'm sure you guys have seen the new Barbie trailer is out and I am obsessed, completely obsessed with this trailer. And I can't wait for the movie. I think it it comes out in Australia, July 20th in cinemas. So that's going to be amazing. I'm going to dress up, go to the movie, be with all the girls. It's going to be great. But the best thing about this movie is the character posters, the promos they've got for each of the characters. They're these Barbie tiles and they kind of look like the packaging, you know, when you say new Barbie doll, you're like, oh, what's this? And the best part is all of the captions for the Barbies. It's this Barbie like is a lawyer, a doctor, a Nobel Prize winner. And the Kens, it's hilarious. It's just like, this is just Ken. Oh, this is Ken again. Like, oh, yeah, Ken, Ken doesn't do anything. Ken doesn't do anything. Ken has never done anything. And I'm just like, I love it because, yeah, Barbie's expected to be, you know, some amazing human that, or not she's a human, amazing doll that can do everything and anything. And then Ken is, Ken is just there. Like, that's just all that Ken does. So I love that. It's so clever, so smart. The internet is going wild over it. And I just can't wait for this movie. It's going to be great. Uh, That does sound really fun and it's all over my social media as well. I, as a kid, had shaven fun Ken. He was great. Came with this little pretend razor, no actual blade in it, obviously. And when you put water on his chin, his stubble would grow. Good times, everyone. Uh, I have a final recommendation for you, changing gears very, very quickly here, folks, which is a new podcast uh, from Future Women, which is where my day job is. And I promise I'm not just totally self-promoting. It's a really good podcast. It's called Shortlisted and it's going to help you land your next job. Uh, I think there's nothing that makes people go weak at the knees quite like a job interview. So no matter how experienced or accomplished you are, I think once you're being quizzed for your suitability for a new role, it gets really nerve wracking. We have put together this podcast, it's called Shortlisted, and we literally hold your virtual hand and we walk with you every step of the way to the interview door and onto their shortlist. Uh, It goes through the art of how to ask for things that can be tricky, how to explain an extended career break, how to turn the conversation to money, how to ask about flexible work, but also the questions that come up all the time, like why do you want to work for us? Where do you see yourself in five years? What's your biggest weakness? Uh, I just think it's really helpful, practical, useful, I think you guys will love it and it is perfect if you are job hunting right at the moment. That is it for us today at The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for giving us your attention. We never take it for granted. We hope you loved this episode. If you did, you should download the listener app and you can follow the briefing there or you can follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.